0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: So, without further ado, I would—I'm—I'm um, I'm very pleased um, to be able to have invited uh, Renshin Bunce to come speak with us here at Austin Zen Center. I have to say that the pandemic—one of the—one of the nice things I have to. <laughs> strangely, um, of being forced online is that we ha- uh, were able to invite people more, more often than uh, our budget would normally allow because we're not flying people in. We're asking them to come in on Zoom. Um, that said, I do want to encourage everyone when we have a visiting teacher to please contribute to uh, uh, Donna for them. Our visiting teachers are not you know, we don't have very large honorariums to give and uh, any support that you can offer, whether it's, you know, just a couple bucks to, you know, uh, you know a couple dozen bucks, it's, uh, it, it goes a long way. Um, so please, please, you know, use our uh, PayPal, me or Venmo or what have you, um, and just indicate on a donation that it's for the, the visiting teacher and we will get that to them. So please be generous with them as as you can. So it's always hard to, um, when inviting people and, and introducing them, I, I find that I always wanna talk about like my connection to them, <laughs> because that's, obviously that's like what's relevant to me. <laughs> um, and And just to say that for Wren in particular, I I first met Wren when I moved into City Center in San Francisco's Center. Started, actually, before I moved in, when I started coming in 1997, I think Wren I I think was there was a resident at that time and not yet not yet a resident, but was around quite a bit and and one was one of my dearest dearest friends welcoming me into the sangha there and Wren. Uh, started practicing with Myogen Steve Stuckey, whom many of you know, back in 1994, and eventually decided, after receiving Jukai with him, decided to go deeper into monastic practice and enter the monastery, I believe in 2000, is that correct? And, um, And lived at Tassahara for a number of years, and off and on, uh, returning to Tassahara in 2008 to be Chusseau with Steve uh, Stuckey. Yeah, great, good times, good times in, in monastic life. And just a little bit more about Ren. Ren left a, a profession in a real estate industry in San Francisco, kind of put everything aside to make space for her practice. And then, after being in residence for seven years of, you know uh, scraping by financially, went off and is one of the first people, I think, to forge a herself in, uh, in the work of chaplaincy, and has published uh, a memoir from her time at Tasahara, as well as her new book, which has just come out recently, called "Love and Fear." And uh, she's gonna be talking about what it means uh, to help. And what does it mean to help? So this is the title of her talk today. And um, I'm very excited to, to be here and to hear your teaching, Ren. Good morning, Austin Zen Center,
2: my darlings. I always thought I'd get down there and see you in person. Maybe I will. But as Mako said, how fortunate we are to have this way of meeting. As a priest who's out in the world, I give Dharma talks once in a while. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sitting up on a pedestal every Saturday morning as I had thought I would be. And when I hear the chant, right, what is that? Unsur- am I supposed to deliver an unsurpassed penetrating Dharma? actually yes (laughs) and the truth of the Tathagata's words the truth of the Tathagata's words the problem with my question about that chant is that I make it be about me it's not the truth of the Tathagata's words is everywhere just just look out the window and there it is so I say that to soothe myself Everything Mako said is true. I, I left a, a reasonable career. I'm in recovery. So in my 40s, I had to do something and I started selling real estate. I loved adopting that role, wearing suits, having long red fingernails, driving an used Mercedes. I thought that putting that head above my own would make me acceptable. Uh, That was hell. (laughs) Fortunately, I discovered meditation through recovery, right? It's the word meditation is right there in the steps. And when I began meditating, I encountered the teachings and started going on long retreats and, and encountered that way of living. I always felt better when I came back from meditating for a week. So, sure, so I walked away from all security. I thought I was walking into a different security of being a resident of San Francisco Zen Center. That turned out to be not so secure. But I sure got what I wanted. I got what I needed. Just those, it's, it's interesting how often I think back to those long hours, those days at Tassajara, back, there goes the bell again, back to the Zendo, back to the Zendo. Such long hours of meditation that finally, finally the parts of my mind, my thinking that I had so much trouble to avoid, I, I finally couldn't avoid them. And as um, as has been said Uh wore off the sharp edges when it was clear that it was time for me to leave zen center i wasn't going to go back to selling real estate so when it was time to leave zen center i was in my 60s i had no money what was i going to do and chaplaincy was suggested to me when i ordained I'd say now, again, It. I thought I was going to put another head over mine. I thought I was going to be admirable. I thought people would admire me if I was a priest. I thought people wouldn't see how insecure I am, how little I know. But <laughs> But that's not how that goes. And then I'll say now that the same is true for when I trained as a chaplain and began working. Then I could have that head over my own. Oh, she's the chaplain. But you know, to, to, become, to get a job, you do a one-year hospital residency, which is good. They turn you loose in the hospital to walk up to complete strangers and introduce yourself as a chaplain. And this is how we learn. It's the only way. You can't read about it in a book. You can't sit in a chair in a classroom, and they say, do this, do that. So there I was in this hospital, so afraid of being found out. I was so afraid of being found out that I thought people wouldn't like it that I was a Buddhist. So I realized a few months in that I was pretending to be a Christian. I was... (laughs) I was talking about God all the time. We had to keep little charts of what we'd done on our visits. And we were, in it's called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. And the group of us were going through our charts. And it was a bunch of Christians and me. and um, And I was praying more than they were. So it occurred to me that I was gonna need to be more authentic than that. If I was gonna be what's called a chaplain, if I was gonna do what we call offering spiritual help, I had to be authentic. I had to figure out what I meant when I said God, because yeah, people will wanna talk to a chaplain about God, that's reasonable. I had to learn how to pray, to pray authentically I believe that Zen training is great training for a chaplain because we are, we're training in how to show up, right? We're training in not turning away from difficulty. And I see it in my work all the time, how the human tendency to turn away from difficulty. Don't turn away, don't turn away, look it straight in the eye. And perhaps most importantly, the demand that I've made on myself because of my training is to meet each moment new, to meet each patient new, even if it's someone who I've already seen. What is it now? What's here now? There needs uh, a way in which I've been now, I've been working as a professional hospice chaplain for 10 years. And one benefit that I see from this is in those hours when I'm representing an institution, an institution that's larger than the company that writes my paycheck, I have to be kind. Temper has been my problem in my life. Temper has cost me a lot. If I'm meeting with a patient or a family member and something happens that um, I think is rude I have to button it up. I have to take it. I have to deal. I don't get to lose my temper. This has been very good training for me. It's, as I like to say, working as a chaplain has developed my muscle of kindness. And the older I get, the more I value kindness. So when I when I first was doing the work, I was so stunned by what I saw. And there was no help for it. The first job that I got was with a for-profit hospice did you hear that a for-profit hospice nobody was talking about how to be kind nobody was talking about how to meet the moment they were talking about how to do enter our chart notes in such a way that they got the maximum reimbursement from medicare and that's the truth I was really glad my paychecks didn't bounce. I understood their point. But I still needed help in in navigating death. (laughs) So a way that I've dealt throughout my life is to write about it. If I'm writing about what I'm seeing, thinking, feeling, I'll get clarity. So I began writing stories about the hospice patients I was seeing I wrote those stories for seven years, and in I guess it's the last year. Writing the book was such an interesting process. Um, I like to say about my priest vow that I thought I was I was taking a vow. I hear it. I am taking a vow. Me, 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 me. But a few years in, I realized thank you, thank you, that what had happened was that the vow was taking me. The same thing is true with the work and the same thing is true with the book. At a certain point in the last year, (laughs) the book sort of wrestled me to the ground and said, here's what I'm going to look like. It was quite a relief. So here it is. And, you know, I have books on my shelf that are essays, teachings. I have textbooks on grief counseling. I can't read those books. I've never been able to read textbooks. I just don't have that mind. But I love reading stories. So, so the things that I've had to say about the work and how to do the work are embedded in the stories. I also accidentally Didn't mean to, but, well, what I did intentionally was introduce myself at the start of the book. There are other books of stories by people like me, but I have felt in reading them, I don't know who you are. I don't even know what faith tradition you come from. So I wanted the reader, maybe I just wanted to talk about myself, (laughs) I did, but I wanted the reader to know who I am going in. And I think it's the second paragraph in the book that says, you know, look, I'm not an angel. Because hospice chaplain, everybody's like, oh, you're such an angel. I'm actually not. I'm actually not. I'm a human being. So that introduction was written some time ago. I knew about that. But what I didn't know was I didn't know how to finish the book. And the conclusion, the introduction, I would say now, it states my problem my problem of looking for meaning, the, the despair over life itself that has been on my shoulder since infancy. The question of how to help. When I was new in AA, I heard, if you're having a bad day, go out and help someone and you'll feel better, and I found that was true. But what help is, what that means, is an ongoing question. And certainly now I'm a professional helper, and I have had to confront that question. When I wrote the end of the book, I got a gift. (laughs) I got a gift. I was diagnosed with lymphoma last year. I learned what it is to be a patient. I had a very small, treatable, non-life-threatening lymphoma, and it was terrible it was radiation going through radiation was really really hard so there was my conclusion and there is the springboard for addressing those questions the questions of meaning sometimes uh, sometimes it's not unusual for a patient or family member to ask me to ask me to tell them what happens when where we go when we die right (laughs) My the first Shusot ceremony I ever went to was Kosho's. And the first question I ever asked a Shusot is, where do we go when we die? <laughs> Kosho said he didn't know. I tried it on Blanche one time in a Shosan ceremony. What where do we go? What? And um I have never you know, Blanche was Blanche was so Blanche and Blanche Blanche says, Why, well, I, I don't know. I haven't died yet. And I say that to patients, it was good, wasn't it? Didn't that sound like her? I, uh, I, I, I will quote that to patients and family members. Um, let's see, I went off on a tangent, and it was about help, about answering questions. Well, I forgot where I was. That's not unusual too. So in between a chapter of introducing myself and a chapter of coming to some conclusions, there are stories of what it's like to be mostly old, old and sick in America. The stories address the luck element. I met a woman who had it all together. She had plenty of money, her advance directives were in place, Everything was clear. She had a she had a very difficult death. Things didn't go as planned. I met another woman. Her entire worldly assets were, I, th- I think it was two thousand dollars in cash in a shoebox. She had no advance directive. She didn't even have Medicare, and she had a good death. So. So who's to say? So this is a way that I that I talk to my patients and family members. I say, well, actually, we don't know. We're, we do our best. Try to figure out what it is you want. Tell the people around you. There's another story in the book about a woman who, um, she had uh, she had health challenges. Uh, for one, she was deaf, and she wrote her advance directives. She asked a relative will you be will you speak for me if i reach a point where i can't speak for myself the relative said yes she had them drawn up by an attorney notarized she sent them to the relative the relative received them and put them away and when the woman was found on the floor after she had a stroke the 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 advance directives were not followed she said in the advance directives don't don't put me on life support, don't intubate me, don't put a feeding tube in me, and all of those things happened. And that woman was in a skilled nursing facility, helpless, on life support for a year. There are cheerful stories in the book. All of the stories, all of the stories are about help. How could I help that woman? How could I help how could I help her relative who now was being asked to withdraw the life support? And she knew that, that her, her relative would die. What's help. And that's actually a good story. Cause as I was talking to her, she was a Catholic and she had talked to the priests and the priests said, it's okay. You can, it's, it's okay. You can withdraw that life support. The church, the church says it's okay. So I figured, oh, good, I don't have to worry about this anymore. And I said to her, isn't that, oh, great, the priest said it's okay. And she still couldn't get there. And then I thought to say to her, oh, this this is love. love. Love is hard work. It's your love for your relative that's going to help you find the strength to do this. And I've, um, I've not forgotten that. It's love. An earlier patient, um, a man younger than I with early onset dementia, which is enormously difficult to witness. Young face, healthy body, dementia. Very, so difficult to witness that his, uh, his wife had put him in a facility and left town so I was visiting him, I felt sorry for him. I feel sorry for the lonely people. Or I probably should say, I look out for the lonely people. So I was visiting him frequently. And then, um, then we had a little care conference, and his daughter was there on a speakerphone, and when it came around to me introducing myself, this little voice came out of a speakerphone, and she said, um, do you accept Christ as your savior? I said, well, no, no. She didn't want a Buddhist visiting her father. And yet I knew if I didn't visit him, he'd really be alone. So in that one case, I I fought to be able to keep visiting him and was able to. And he taught me one long afternoon, sitting there once again, just sitting by the bedside of someone who is unable to respond. He's staring at the ceiling. I'm sitting there. Everything's quiet. Once again, it's a chance to ask myself, what am I doing? What am I supposed to do? What can I do? What is help? And there was this understanding that came in steps as understandings do. At first I thought, I was creating connection because I'm here. You're connected. There it is again. I, I, I. I thought, no, that's not it. I was, we were, he and I together were manifesting the connection that's always there. And I think that that understanding that arose in that moment with that patient has It it is one of the single most sustaining enlightenment moments that I've experienced. And it applies here. I see Mako, I haven't seen Mako in the flesh for, I don't know, 10 years? And yet we've been together this whole time. We're connected. I see Wendy, someone who I've never met, but we've always been connected and we always will be connected. Uh, The loneliness that has plagued me, that has made me do some very, very sad things. This is the mitigation for that loneliness. This is the help that I have needed. I just adopted a cat. I took the cat of one of my patients who died. The cat is 10 years old. I learned yesterday, this cat weighs 18 and a half pounds. This, this cat is overweight. And this cat is under my bed grieving. It's not eating. It comes out once in a while. It let me uh, comb it, and it purred. So, But it's pretty much not eating. Now this has been a very interesting experience. Because if you go on Facebook and you say, well, I, I got this cat, which is great. Boy, I have a cat, but you know, the cat's grieving. It's, it's, it's traumatized, it's not eating. And a lot of people have wanted to help me. They, a lot of people have wanted to have the, the secret answer. They've wanted to fix. So when we talk about helping, are we talking about fixing? I don't think in anything that I ever said online about this cat that I asked for, well, of course I did. I'd love it if someone had a secret fix. But the other night when someone said, and, and I'm going to say for me, this has been a very stressful week. I've been worried about the cat. And there've been certain noises and smells in the night (laughs) that have interrupted my sleep. Um, but the other night, when someone who I treasure said, um, "Did you try tuna?" And I just—I really know that cats like tuna. I—I I actually already knew that. <laughs> I quite a few people have said, "Don't put its feeding bowls by its litter box." Like I actually already knew that. I'm okay with that. I tell the story because. I, to me this is a good example of of what is help when i'm saying i'm having difficulty with a cat what am i saying what's a response the only way that i'm effective as a chaplain the reason i think the one of the reasons i'm effective as a chaplain is because i'm so intimate with suffering i know what i would want and what i want with this cat is for people, you know what I want? I want people to say, that sounds hard. That's all I want. That sounds hard. Yeah, yeah, when older cats go through trauma, they go under the bed and don't eat. Yep, it's hard. That's all I want, because there's not a secret fix. I think we apply these secret fixes for our own comfort, and I think that that's what we really have to watch out for. Who am I trying to comfort in this situation? A lot of people in the helping professions are codependent. I'm codependent. I've been to a ton of Al-Anon. I watch my boundaries. It's interesting. It's an ongoing balance between personal boundaries and um, and kindness. And in this time of COVID, of course, my work has changed completely. I used to spend a lot of my time driving up and down the peninsula. It was all home visits. Spend a lot of my time sitting by the bedside of someone who's unable to respond. Maybe just sitting, maybe reading, maybe reading from the Bible, maybe reading from a book by Rebecca Solnit. You know, she re- Rebecca did a retelling of the Cinderella story. I read that to a lot of my female patients. It's a really good book can't do it anymore. So now it's all phone visits and it's phone visits to the families of the of the older people with dementia. We have, at any given time, half of my patients' census is people with dementia as their diagnosis. So the whole thing has changed. I miss my patients and I have begun visiting in person again. A patient came on, I guess a couple months ago, a young Jesuit priest. And he and I talked on the phone and we, we, we were brother and sister from another mother. We were, we started in the deep end. I got COVID tested so I could go and visit him sitting outside masked. We took our masks off, loved him. He didn't need help. But we needed each other. We needed the manifestation of connection. He was a reward. And he was... I asked him, because I hear... I go to a certain number of Catholic funerals. And, you know, usually usually what the priest says is, don't be sad, she's in heaven with Jesus. And I'm sitting there in black going, this is sad. (laughs) Don't be sad, she's in heaven with Jesus. So I asked him, he's a Jesuit priest. I said, "Are, are you... When you die, you're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus. He'd laugh. He's like, no, when? So he didn't need to tell me what he believed, but what he showed me was the most unusual thing. He showed me uh, a death without fear. 30 years ago, I helped my mother die, and she was so full of fear. My mother was averse to difficulties. My mother had not faced death for sure and when it came for her when it was standing in the doorway and she was in a hospital bed in her bedroom she began screaming no i i was still selling real estate i had no idea of working in hospice doing anything like this and yet As I saw my mother die badly, that was a bad death. When you're screaming, that's a bad death. And I thought, you know, if I could find a way to become more friendly with death, it might help me when it's my time. I'll say, I am very friendly with death. And yet, none of us know. None of us know. So, so the work that I'm doing is helpful to me. It is helpful to others. People come back and they say, Ren, you were helpful. And I'm really glad to hear that. And for some years, that gave me the meaning that I'd been looking for. I'd have some terrible day. Or I'd be talking to team members. One of my nurses would say, "Wasn't oh, that was terrible. And I'd say, but we were helpful. It's okay. We were helpful. But, you know, I've reached a point now where I don't think being helpful is extra, (laughs) right? (laughs) Being helpful is being human, showing up for each other, developing this ability to meet each other in the moment, to not walk into the room with a picture and a story already in my head that I'm going to lay on top of you for my comfort but to walk in and say, who are you? How is it to be you? And to think to myself, what might you need? What might you find helpful? When I had my lymphoma, gee whiz, how I wanted someone to tell me what was going on. There was nobody. It was all medical. I was so sick and there was nobody. So so I did think then, you know, when I get back to work, I'm gonna keep on trying to be the person who tells people, oh, here's what's going on. Oh, you feel like this because you're dying. This is how people feel when they die. This is not a crisis. I often quote Jack Kornfield, who, who I once heard say that when we're born, we're issued a return ticket. So uh, some patients I can say to them, you know, you just, you're cashing in your return ticket, not a crisis. And I'll tell people, the more you can accept what's going on, the easier it's going to be for you. I didn't think it was going to be like this, but it, but it is. It is like this. What else do I have? Have I said enough about helping, which is supposed to be the topic? I think the main thing I have to say about it is, when we're trying to help, when we think to ourselves i want to help we need to think about who we're helping is what i'm about to say or do is it going to help them or me when lou hartman was dying he was in zen hospice and it was textbook great lou's in bed he's perfectly quiet and all in the room we are there sitting on cushions meditating people are presenting incense bowing Blench is there she's cross-legged in an armchair perfect i'm sitting on a zafu on the floor and the thought crosses my mind i should do something <laughs> you know that thought and and then and then i thought you are not here in a professional capacity sit still and the next thing i knew i was standing up and i was adjusting his oxygen tubing and it irritated him who was i helping whose discomfort was i addressing lou hartman never stopped giving me lessons (laughs) that was a good lesson surprising how much i miss lou so We have time for questions and answers. The book is called Love and Fear. It was hard to come up with a title. Love, um, love is the only thing that matters. Uh, I don't talk about God very much. I talk about love all the time because to me it's the same thing. It's the divine glue that's holding us together, that's manifesting the connection that's already here, that's ending the loneliness. The fear that I talk about, we see fear in people who are dying, but you know, I've come to believe that's fear of change. We're all afraid of change. Remember how in the doorway between the kitchen and the small kitchen, people always stopped in that doorway to have a conversation. I want toast, I want to get in that room and they're standing there blocking the doorway. I began to think about that. Why is it always the doorway? And to me, it stands as a, as a symbol of how <laughs> we're afraid to go in the small kitchen. We're, we're afraid of change. We stop, we balk, we stay in the doorway. There's no bigger change than death. So most of my patients express a certain amount of fear. But I also wanted fear in the title because I've never stopped being afraid. There was a time I was called to a death, a very sad death, a young woman and her whole family was there. I'd never met anyone, one of them. Hello, chaplain, would you go help? (laughs) Right? Oh, sure. And I'm standing there and I raised my hand to knock on the door and I just thought, oh my God, I have no idea what's on the other side of this door. And, and. And I'm going to do it because I have to do it. Knock, knock, knock. And then the door opens. Still, I get a new admission and I'm getting ready to punch out the phone number and I've read the chart. I'm ready. I'm me. I know how to do this. And I'm afraid. Am I adequate? Is it possible to be adequate? Are they going to like me? Am I going to succeed? Knock. Knock, knock, love and fear, love and fear. So it's for my patients and it's for me and it's for us. I did a, I was interviewed for a podcast yesterday by two Christian chaplains. And this guy asked me a great question. He said, now, I mean, they were very curious about a Buddhist who's a chaplain. And this guy, super nice guy, interesting guy says, um, well, now in your faith, In your practice, the tools in your practice, what is there in Buddhism that helps you uh, to do the work, Um, you know, except for meditation? (laughs) And I said, you know, sorry, that's our tool. That's it, man. (laughs) That's what we got. And I said some other words. I probably said something about ritual or bowing or something. But that's it. Sit down. Sit down. Learn what it is to be human by studying your own mind. And by knowing what it is to be human, we can help other humans who haven't had that gift, that gift of thousands of hours of boredom, so bored that we finally have to look at what's going on. Uh, That trains us to be helpful. So I will end with that,
1: with uh, gratitude. So Ren, I don't know if you can see the chat dialogue, but there are a few questions here. The first, yes, one nice! From uh, Sherry. Um, Sherry, did you want to ask that question with your own with your own voice? Okay. Um, they First off, thank you for your wonderful, very meaningful talk. Oh, thanks. Um, so uh, I was taken back a little bit because you said. I mean, first of all, you seem so hopeful and optimistic, and yet you said you had difficulty with, have had difficulty with despair, and you mentioned since infancy. So I wonder if you could maybe uh, go a little deeper into to what you meant by despair, and particularly that's what we're feeling, or I'm feeling, with this current situation with COVID, a lot of despair.
2: I have a memory of myself as a small child lying on my bed and crying and thinking that life wasn't worth the trouble. It's it's just too hard. I don't want to do it. And uh, that's the kind of despair that I'm talking about. I've felt it recently. I come from a family of alcoholics, uh, uh, quite a few suicides in my family. The door to suicide has been open all my life. With COVID, going through the grief, I believe I, many of us, I'm grieving my former life. I used to go to Paris every year just because I wanted to just to break up the routine. So a part of grief is, a, would say, a kind of reevaluation. I'm seeing in myself, I have a few friends who are, who are actually bipolar. I'm not diagnosing myself as bipolar, but I'm saying anxiety and depression are a way of life. So when the depression arrives, and being home alone with Donald Trump in the white house and a pandemic across the globe depression has been pretty darned available and the end result you know where depression goes is is it worth it this difficulty is it going to get any better that's the despair i'm talking about one way out of that now that i've met you wendy yes Are you, no, you're not Wendy. What's your name? Sherry. Sherry. Mm -hmm. Now that I've met you, now that we've finally met, if you heard in the future that I had been unable to do it, that I'd taken my own life, I'd be letting you down. This is one mitigation for despair. This is the top level of sort of threatening myself. You can't do that. (laughs) But more importantly, and I think I learned this from Steve, look around, look around, find some beauty. Ask yourself, where do you feel this in your body? Steve always, God, I always was bringing in my personal problems. And, and my memory is the only thing he ever answered was, where do you feel it in your body? Learn something from it. Help someone. There, there are a lot, of, a lot of responses to despair. But I must say, just as I'm the priest who can't remember the chant <laughs> that ends the talk, <laughs> I'm, I'm a human being and, and, and despair seems to be always available. Does that is that a sufficient
1: answer? Thank you. Somebody else, please. Uh, Maureen, did you would you like to uh, ask your question, or would you like me to read it?
3: Sure, I can I can ask it, Marco. Thank you. (coughs) Uh, uh, Hi. So, what a lovely uh, conversation. I I appreciate um, it very much and your honesty. I wondered wondered if you could talk a little bit, I I like um, how you talk about um, approaching things new and fresh, kind of like not with an agenda, even if you met someone previously. Um, At the same time, there are situations in which you feel um, uh, you should um, work towards to affect a result. And the example in mind is the woman who did not want you visiting her father, right? Because you didn't accept Christ as your savior. And to me, that's like a common challenge is how do I navigate that kind of a confluence of how can I be open um, and ask the questions you ask, like what can I bring at the same time when I have that thought, "Ooh, I should go for this objective or this goal in this context. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about
2: that. Are you in the helping professions?
3: You know, I am kind of a policy person, but I my I work for uh, the public hospitals. So I also in Texas right. also appreciated your comment about the for profits, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So we we battle them constantly, right? Oh,
2: thank you.
3: <laughs>
2: anyway, sorry. <laughs> you have nothing to be sorry for. In your question. The, I think the difficulty we create for ourselves is deciding what result we should be working for at the start of the interaction. All I knew with that patient was I wanted to keep visiting him. The result of what I wanted, what I wanted to come from those visits, I couldn't know but I knew that he was not just lonely, but abandoned. And it felt like I was his best shot at some human company. I, I worked pretty hard in that situation to get what I wanted, it's true. Maybe, maybe it was okay, because I, I, I believe I truly wanted it for him. I'm going to say in my personal life. <laughs> For instance, last Saturday I was watering my plants and I saw a guy with a dog and a bag of dog food and I thought, you know, if I had a cat I'd be happier. So 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 oh boy, a cat. You know, oh here's the couch, here's your scratching post, here's me, here's your fucking tuna. <laughs> but that and that that was my goal oh boy oh boy and it's not what i got for me life is is it's a constant recalibration can 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 you actually want what you got can i drop the idea of what i was supposed to have and can i want what i got i I think that's the best answer i can come up with
3: yeah great thank you thank you
2: and enjoy the tuna while it's here. <laughs> Thank you for your work. Keep that hospital going. God.
3: I have a question. Um, I'm Wendy.
2: <laughs> You're the one who is Wendy.
3: <laughs> um, I I heard two parts of your the piece about um, you know kind of helping versus fixing in that I I first heard it as someone like trying to offer help and how often I attempt to fix things. But the flip side of that is how hard it is for me to ask for help. Because in my mind, I kind of play out that all I'm going to get is advice. So I, I kind of play the whole scenario out anyway, and just skip the asking for help. So I was curious, you know, you having been through that, what would you do next? Like, how do you handle the inclination to just not try again.
2: Thank you. Yeah. When I had when I had lymphoma, I needed help. (laughs) Shoot, man. Is there someone I can pay? Is there what I saw was first I don't I don't want to ask for help and be denied. I'm afraid i'm afraid of losing and i don't want to ask for help cuz i cuz i don't want to i don't want to seem like i need it i don't want to seem weak i i don't want to show people that i can't do everything myself but i but i really needed help what i saw this is good what i saw was for there to be helpers, there need to be people who need help. So, as helpers, we're bringing a gift, but as the person who needs help, we're bringing a gift too. That was huge. And that's, um, am I? When would I? When would I ask for help now in a situation like that? But it, but it has to be as serious as having lymphoma. <laughs> for the rest of it, that's okay. I'll take care of it. Yeah, we're not living in a world where it's okay to be weak. But when we really are, it's, uh, it's probably not a problem. Thank you for the question. Is that enough? Is that? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. True. Thank you, the true Wendy. <laughs>
0: Uh Renshin, I have a question for you. Thank you very much for, for your words. Um as others have said, very meaningful. Um I have a maybe a very specific question for you. Um so my mother my mom's in advanced uh, stages of Alzheimer's. I'm oh, sorry. And um she's in Chicago, so I have very limited access to her. And I have been wondering about what is, what will the end be like for her? Um, And I think it's hard because I can't be there to be part of the process right now. But, But my question for you is, based on your vast experience with this, for patients with dementia and Alzheimer's, you talk about good death and bad death if your If your mind functions at, at, a, at a level that advanced alzheimer's allows it to function at, does that make one a patient more prone to a good death or perhaps more prone to a challenging death, how does Alzheimer's affect that kind of end of life state or conditions for a patient? Probably
2: what? We in hospice call a good death is a calm death. Probably what I, in in hospice, we don't say, oh, that, it's not in the official record, that was a bad death. But we will say to each other, that was rough. And when we say that was rough, it's when there's a lot of agitation, when it looks like fear is emerging, concern. I had a woman who was, clawing to get out of bed insisting she had to go to work on the day that she died and that's when in hospice we bring in drugs a lot of drugs in the case of dementia dementia itself is actually not fatal as you probably already know we don't die of dementia the majority of our dementia patients die because they stop eating. They, they, apparently, the brain forgets how to eat. The patient starts doing what we call pocketing food. You know, the caregiver offers the food and the patient will chew it but not swallow it. Pocketing food. They'll forget how to swallow then they'll forget how to chew. They'll apparently forget appetite. This is, as I have said many times, this is how people have been dying for centuries. We think of how it is to be hungry, and and this looks serious. we have many conversations with family members about how this is actually natural. We don't believe she's suffering. What we, what the majority of us seem to want is to go to sleep and not wake up. And that's what usually will happen when a person with dementia stops eating. Then they'll stop taking liquid. The rule of thumb is we can go three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air so what follows not eating is not drinking and what happens is the person just goes to sleep and we will have a just sleeping person while the heart and lungs do their thing and then they're gone okay what's going on in the mind of that person We will, where was I? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the room of someone who was in a similar situation recently. I was talking to the family member. The family member spoke to me and the patient raised her eyebrows to agree. So we very much believe that up until the final breath, people are hearing. With dementia, the comprehension seems to come and go. Do I think that a patient with dementia is thinking, oh my God, I'm dying, somebody do something, help, help, help. No, I don't. No, I think in the, the damage to the brain that comes with dementia, I think that help, help, help is long gone. And I hope, I hope that this is how it is for your mother. And listen, I am easy to find, <laughs> wrenchandbunst.com, I am easy to find. And if you wanna talk, if any of you wanna talk about any of this, this is my
1: life, okay? Rich, would you like to unmute yourself? Uh,
0: thank you for that talk, that was great. Um, Thanks. I, I, in your talk, you said that uh, caregivers tend to be codependent. Could you speak about that and what that means? Because I'm a little
2: Did I say Sorry. that?
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean to put you on the spot.
2: You you caught me. I think what I meant to say, a lot of people who go into the caregiving professions have a tendency toward codependency. Is that better? Are you perhaps I, an, a nurse or something or a doctor?
0: I work in school in a school with kids with disabilities. So this kind of like this question has come up in my mind many times. And I'm like, okay, boundaries. What is, what are boundaries?
2: Cool. Great. I'd say it's a, it's like my talking about my own anxiety and depression, but saying that I don't think I'm bipolar. It's the question of how much is enough. Um, uh, When I was going to, um, when I went to LNN, I went to ACA meetings. I was raised by a single parent who was an alcoholic. So Gee, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. Yeah, you got that right. So um, when I was going to those meetings, my favorite uh, definition of the codependent is the person who, when they're dying, somebody else's life flashes in front of their eyes. The difficulty with codependency is we're so focused on the other that we don't pay any attention to ourselves. That we, the codependent, find self-worth in the other person which is putting a pretty big burden on the other person so for me to be constantly watching my motives to be asking and and i'll you know as i'm asking who am i helping here okay am i doing this to provide comfort for myself no am i trying to help the other person yes when I am being a chaplain, but how far? Ah, um, am I willing to? Oh, uh, yeah. Am I willing to do my best and let that be good enough? If the if the other person isn't transformed by my, by my presence, can I live with that? I think so. You see, what it's just a matter of how much. And and am am I willing? at the end of the day, to be responsible for my own life. Can I stop looking for that person who's gonna come and transform me? Okay, does that answer it? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you for your work.
4: Renshin, may I ask a question? This is Tracy Kramer in Austin, can you hear me? Yes. Renshin, we knew each other about 20 years ago at City Center. Uh, but, but my hair's gone gray. <laughs> <laughs> you so, know what?
2: I recognize. I recognize your your smile.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. Flip well, the smiles to, to to firm up that recognition. We can chat sometimes. Thank you so much for for offering to chat at at some other time. Yeah. I, I would very appreciate that. Having uh, been with my mother uh, some years ago and my father just recently. Uh, in, in hospice with these experiences of uh, what you're describing. Um, but uh, so thank you so much for today. And um, I just, I just, just, just that someone has said helping or fixing. Well, I don't know, but my interactions with you 20 years ago, living in the same, <laughs> place, getting in the way, I, I was one of those people who was like, get out of my <laughs> At the small kitchen door, <laughs> and I would have been one of them in the way of somebody at some, at, you know, of course. Um, <laughs> was um, was uh, your kindness? Oh, uh, what? Yes. Well, only, only, only. I say only that of. I just recall our interactions because, oh, she's she's paying attention to me. <laughs> Oh, thanks. Uh, you, you know, and it's just, just down to that, would, that for me, in your work, <laughs> life, um, when you had begun the talk, began the talk with, what, Tathagata? tathagata? Tathagata's words? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I just thought, well, that would be uh, the authentic one. That's the Tathagata, the authentic one. The yeah. one who shows up, the one who speaks and acts from love. At the moment, you know, it's like, well, where is that? Is it the small? Well, let's call it the small love or the big love? (laughs) The I love or the, the big I love? Well, whatever, I just experienced it in that moment as just love. I didn't know.
2: I obviously really appreciate that. And I'll say that that's the muscle we need to develop, right? Is, to, is learning to express that. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much. Wow.
2: I, I do want to, there's a story. Yeah. We'll be there, but there's, a, you know, um, in America, we have love stamps, right? And it's a nice image, and it says love. The first of those was, an, it was a kind of a, of a rainbow swash uh, done by Sister Mary Carita. It said love. There was a restaurant that we used to go to when we came out of Tassahara. It was a kind of a cafe. Oh, God, it was a get out of Tassahara and have a hamburger. It was like so great. So I was in the bathroom in that restaurant. Why do so many great moments come to me when I'm sitting on the toilet? There Mm -hmm. I am. And I look over, and that Sister Mary Corita poster is on the wall, and it says love, and then under it, it says, is hard work this is what we the American Postal Service and the American people we have not been able to allow that love is hard work it's it's a facility we need to develop it doesn't just fall out of the sky and land on our heads I'm glad I got to tell that story okay hi there
4: oh, yes Hi. Oh, um- you know, I, I when I've been around people dying, I, I, I noticed the same tendency that you were talking about when you you were with Lou Hartman. That I want to get up and help them and do you know straighten the sheets or do do whatever I can to what What's behind that?
0: Is that just like a busyness? I mean, can't, I, I I'm not able to center myself or that's you know,
2: discomfort. I'm uncomfortable and I have to do something. It's power. Ah, I'm uncomfortable, so I'm going to exert some power so I will feel comfortable. That's what it is for me.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds good, yeah.
2: And sometimes it is helpful in a professional capacity. I can come in and I can see something that family members don't know to look for. So then I think I'm so smart. <laughs> I know how to do this, but what I need to know is where to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much
2: okay you're very welcome thank you <laughs>
5: um i i would like to ask something or maybe say something sure um wow i really appreciate this talk because i'm uh as time goes on i'm less enamored by dharma talks where the person does the the zen thing you know kind of <laughs> quiet, with long pauses and is wise i i really appreciate people who show up i really i mean honestly because i think it's a mistake to for me and it i it's a tendency i have even Um, even though i'm pretty rebellious to put people on pedestals yeah Um, that just comes up and i need lots of help but i i'm never gonna tell you or anybody that i need help but i can say that there are a lot of people Um, at the Austin Zen Center, who have helped me, and it might be um, the way Tracy described, and they don't know it, Um, so I want to thank people for that. I often cry, too, when I start trying to be honest. (laughs) Um, I live with somebody who's bipolar, who um, was called a treatment failure by a doctor, which means, you know, the medications, tons of them didn't help and who despairs daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes by the minute, especially right now. You she, you described exactly what she's feeling with Trump in office. She doesn't understand why, um, she's my one, uh, why people aren't up in arms more, aren't in complete distress because the world is completely falling apart. And uh, so my, so <laughs> this is the love is hard part for me. Um, and thank God in Zen we can talk about death, because I sure appreciate that. I remember talking at lunch one time uh, at work at the university, and now I'm working from home, talking about some talk we had about death, and I was so excited. <laughs> Finally, someone said, Melanie, this isn't exactly, you know, lunchtime conversation. So <laughs> I had to be quiet, because <laughs> I was happy and excited about it. So, uh, yeah love being hard. I, so anyway, so I'm not very much help, really. You know, I'm trying to manage working from home and taking care of things and trying to calm my wife down and, and all that. And I, you know, mostly if I was going to be helpful, I probably have to shut up and really listen, but it's really hard. I don't know how to help someone who doesn't want to be alive, but isn't going to die yet. You know, I don't know what, you know, do you ever, do you ever I remember years and years ago seeing a movie, it was about Native Americans and it was about suicide and it was about suicide as a positive thing, which of course is, oh, God, you don't say that. Anyway, um, so yeah, for me, um, you know, I think sometimes that the things that make us, the things that bring us joy, you said, Steve Stuckey said, you know, find beauty somewhere. Um, I think that's what there is to do. And it can be really small for my wife and I, you know, it can, she loves animals. We, we, in Texas, there are a lot of bugs. We catch them in a net and put them outside. Unlike the guy next door who has a special artisan leather fly swatter and kills big roaches. (laughs) Anyway, I better shut up because I could ramble on. Thank you.
2: It's, it's hard work and, and we do our best.
5: Yeah. And I'm not very good at it. But it's, I think, you know, I'm here to Oh, I get patient.
2: Yeah. Man. Yeah. But, oh, I'm, yeah. Human.
5: Yeah, human. But being at home has been helpful because I think it's helping us together to, cool. to, to make some little incremental progress, to be more patient, to step back, to let it be, to provide, you know, to make breakfast, but, you know, maybe I make breakfast and my wife doesn't eat. I mean, that's the level of the depression, and she's, you know, the treatment failure part is the drugs didn't work, and, you know, my wife was raised with a lot of trauma and abuse, lots and lots and lots of abuse, the kind of childhood you'd never wish on anyone. You know, she remembers, I tell this story sometimes, where her dad would come home from work and walk past her. She was two And say hello to the dog, but not her. Yeah, stuff like that. I mean, that's not physical abuse.
2: So I think that, I think that what's our business is making the breakfast. I think, I think whether or not they eat it, can we actually live in a way that we understand that that's not our business? We we're doing what we can, and we're also. We're also each recovering from being so hard on ourselves. You know, a number of times you've talked mm-hmm. about how, what a failure you are. Probably not. <laughs> so prob- you're probably perfect just as you are. And there's room for improvement. <laughs> I'm, and there are a lot yeah. of, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind is struggling to think of ways to fix you and I can't fix you. But, but, I, but I will say those things. Yeah. And, and not turn it into a counseling session. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, other, the other thing, Melanie, that, that occurred to me that I, that I use a lot in my work is this, this trope of we, we see it and we greet it, but we don't invite it in for a cup of tea. And that's true for so many of these feelings. For me, for instance, to acknowledge, yeah, this is, yeah, this is despair despair is, it's hopped off of my shoulder and into my heart right now. And I'm going to not let it swamp me.
5: Yeah, that's hard.
2: Yep. But acknowledging it is, as long as I ignore what's going on, it's going to continue. It needs to be acknowledged. But it doesn't get to take over. That's, I think that's probably... Yeah. Yeah. Of the several responses I've thought of, I think that that one and that is and that is Zen. That is Zen. And the more hours we spend studying the mind, the more we're able to do that.
5: Yeah, I think that's, you know, that idea of not getting upset about what's happening, extremely upset about what's happening is i think a hard thing to try to explain to people if you can get to that place where you just settle in and and let what's happening happen
2: again i think it's reasonable to get upset
5: okay <laughs>
2: but the que- but the question is how upset
5: yeah the, and the, what do i do next after getting upset yeah.
2: the the temptation is to be swamped by the uh, okay i i am a the only thing that's going on here is i'm upset so that's the not inviting it in for a cup of tea oh, okay but yeah. yeah life is upsetting <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah it's not like zen was going to fix everything like i thought maybe um, and
2: so actually see this is zen this is uh yeah this is all of it. Is that is what Zen is? Yeah, Zen excludes. It excludes nothing. My teacher Steve told me, uh, Zen is is learning what it is to be human. It's not the spiritual bypass of, oh, I'm so Zen. I'll never be upset. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 widening the field, widening the field, and making room for everything. Yeah. When I learned i was diagnosed with lymphoma i lead a sitting group locally and i and and it was meditation night and i had to go down the hill and meet with my students right after getting this phone call and i had to sit still and not move for half an hour with this news which was a gift because at the end of that half hour here's what i understood Whatever happens, it'll be okay. And that's my Zen. And I'm giving it to you.
5: Oh, wow. Thank you.
2: You're very welcome. Um,
5: yeah. And I also identify with the anger stuff, yeah. which is a lifelong study.
2: Pay a high price for being an angry woman. Yeah. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much.
2: You're very welcome. We are always connected, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. We're always connected. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.